This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Judges. I will be reading from verse, sorry, from chapter 13. And we'll begin reading just in a moment that you find that. But encourage you to find it and follow us as we go through this. Today, title of the message is Samson and Delilah, part one. Samson and Delilah. And today we want to look at the life of Samson in the book of Judges. And we will come to his disastrous relationship with Delilah uh, a little bit later. Now, by way of background, let me mention to you that this was a very, very dark time in the history of Israel, the people of God. It was a time when they had been entered into uh, the Promised Land. They had been there for some time now. And in Acts 13, verse 26, when Paul's speaking at a synagogue and he's reciting a little bit of the history of the Jews, he says that the book of Judges covers a period about 450 years. So this was a very long spiritually dark time in the history of God's people. The book of Judges is a sequel to the book of Joshua. And where Joshua largely speaks of conquest, Judges largely speaks of compromise. One is a tale of much victory, the other is a tale of much defeat. However, it's not all negative and dark. There are some wonderful victories won here and there through various judges that God raised up in the land. Now, we're not to think of judges as we normally would think of a judge. There's no one sitting here behind a desk with a gavel in his hand and he's dispensing justice to local citizens. That's not the way that it is. Although Deborah, who was an incredible woman judge, she herself, before she was a judge, she was kind of like that. She was an arbiter between people and sorted out problems before she became a great judge. Judges, by and large, were men and that woman who were raised up by God and given supernatural powers and great courage and faith in order to fight their enemies, in order to deliver their people from the grip of their enemies that had surrounded them and were living among them. And somehow the people of God were being oppressed and how do they become oppressed in the first place? Because they're actually in the promised land. They're in the very place that God had given to them. It belonged to them. It was their own. They owned the land. So how come they're being oppressed in their own land? The trouble was, even though they owned it, they weren't possessing it. And there's a difference between owning and possessing. When I was just a lad... I remember my mom and dad getting me my first bicycle. I think it was a second-hand one, but it might as well be new to me. I was so excited. And that was mine. I owned that. But I really didn't possess it until I learned to ride the thing. I had to learn to ride it, and I fell off several times, but eventually I mastered it, and I could go to the shops on it, or I could go to school on it, or I could play on it, but it was mine. I possessed it as well as owning it. The trouble with these people is they owned the land, but they did not possess it. 
Joshua had told them to go in and possess the land that God had given them, but they didn't make a very good job of it. Some did, but most didn't. And the very first chapter of Judges, we can see here uh, really what was happening. So in Judges chapter 1, let me just break in at verse 17. It says, And Judah, this was at the beginning when the end of the promised land. And Judah went in with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephah, and utterly destroyed it. So the name of that city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with, his with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Akron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah. And they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he expelled from there the three sons of Anak, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Judah. And then verse 22, and the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. But then if you go right on down uh, to verse 27, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashan. And then in verse 28, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out as they should have done. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahal, so the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Acro, so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of land, and they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemesh. And, and the Amorites, verse 34, forced the children of Dan into the mountains for they would not allow them to come down to the valley and the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres and on and on it goes and so you get the picture they came in under orders to possess the land to drive out their enemies these were wicked evil people who worshipped the most vile gods who did the most unbelievable vile things and God said they're like a moral cancer in the land drive them out cut them out get them off the land but they see again and again they failed to drive out the inhabitants in the land they compromised again and again now we always see when you fail to drive out the enemies and you end up compromising with the enemy and any compromise with the evil one is going to cost us some loss in our lives. And in time, these enemies that they had failed to conquer, bit by bit, time after time, they began to inhabit the land, they began to live among them, and then they began to assimilate with them, and then the people of God began to take up their gods. They compromised and began to worship the Baals, the Ashtoreths, their gods, and built temples for their gods, and they worshipped as they worshipped. So they become less godly, they became more permissive, worshipping the world's idols, ignoring the commands of God that was given through Joshua, which they had promised to do. When Joshua gave out the commands, they said, we will do this, we will certainly do this, but they did not do it. As a people, they wanted to do their own thing. God was no longer the priority of their lives. They would be masters of their own fate. And it says the key to the whole book is the very last verse in the book. In Judges 21, 25, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Notice it doesn't say that everyone did what was wrong in his, their own eyes. It was wrong in God's eyes, but it was right in their eyes. And that's typical of the world that we live in today, isn't it? It doesn't matter if it's wrong in God's eyes, as long as it's right in their eyes. And that's what was happening in those days. So that's just like the world around us today. So here's the situation as we come into the story of Samson. The country was spiritually, uh, spiritually declined to the point where there, no one seemed to care about God anymore. God had been related to distant history. This was the third generation after Joshua. By this time, when we come here. The third generation, and the third generation typically is so far removed from the first generation that they can't even remember what their grandfathers did. The Joshua generation was the generation that came in and conquered and took the land and saw signs and wonders and miracles and great things of God, the power of God. But this is the third generation, and they look and they can't even remember what their grandfathers did or what their grandfathers saw. And so then they were more prone to compromise. And that's a principle you see throughout history, actually. And so, compromise, defeat, captivity, servitude, indifference, the order of the day. And it sounds very familiar even in the 21st century. Some of these servitudes, where their enemies had conquered them, some of it lasted a whole generation. A whole generation grew up knowing nothing else other than under the heel of these foreign powers. And life be became very difficult, it became very hard, and, and in time it just wore them down. And after they were worn down and they were tired out with this and they were sick of it, then they would cry unto God, and God in his mercy and grace would raise up a judge, a deliverer, somebody with the power of God to set the nation free. And so that was the role of the judge. That's what God was doing. Now, there's no evidence that in the case that we're going to read today where they cried out unto God. But nevertheless, even if they didn't, God in his mercy looked down and saw the mess they were in and the state they were in. And in his mercy, he raised up one to deliver them. And so, judges, by the way, they were just, by and large, they were ordinary 5 8 people. Uh, they were going about their daily jobs. Some were farmers. But then suddenly the hand of God would come upon them. Suddenly the Spirit of God would stir them. And they would see the need. And they would stand in the gap. And God would raise them up as a deliverer. And they would deliver the land. And sometimes that deliverance would last for a generation. Sometimes 40 years. Sometimes longer. Maybe 80 years. But then the people typically would backslide and go back to their old ways and come under servitude again. And then the whole process would begin over and over and over again. So it's a very sad time in the history of Israel for 450 years. Uh, in Judges chapter 2, uh, it sets the scene for what was happening. I'm taking time to give you the background because it's important whenever we come to Samson. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them 
and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and said, Serve Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. And the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in spite of that, even though God was chastising them through these nations that they compromised with, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. And they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for and, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the, was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than, than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I will also no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So that though that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk on them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. And so we see here the background. Now, we're coming to the time of Samson. By the way, I should just throw this in. Now we're going to speak about it. But the little book of Ruth, which is a beautiful, beautiful little brick we've preached on many times. It's set in the time of judges. The judges are set in the times of battles. Ruth is set in the times of the barley fields. The judges are about war. Ruth is about a wedding. And it's a little cameo, as it were, set in the midst of this darkness and wickedness and evil and battles and fights. And yet in the midst of that, God has a beautiful, beautiful story of redemption. A little book of Ruth. And so... The Philistines now were in charge. The Philistines were generally uh, a southern people along the shore of Israel. And they had their major cities there. But in time, they became emboldened because of the weakness of Israel. They became emboldened to take more and more land. So they, they had great swathes of land that was under their control. And they had ruled over Israel now for 40 years. 40 years. And God was raising up a man. So way up north of the land, in the place where Dan, the tribe, lived, and we read there a moment ago anyway, if you noticed that, where Dan had to live in the mountains because their enemies wouldn't let them live in the valleys and the plains where they could grow good crops. So life was tough and life was hard. But Dan wasn't a good tribe. Dan was an unscrupulous tribe. They were a divided tribe. They were morally loose. And even Jacob, when he was blessed, before he died, when he was blessing all his sons, when it came to Dan, he called him a viper and a serpent. So it wasn't a good tribe. And yet, and yet, in the midst of this idolatrous, compromising tribe of people that were supposed to be God's people, there was a family. There was a husband and a wife. 
He was called Manoah. We don't know what his wife was called, but she was a godly, godly woman. The trouble was she was barren and they had no children. But God would give them a special child, a unique child, and he would grow up to be singularly blessed of God, of supernatural strength. He would be the most unusual of all of the judges. Of the seven references and judges to the Spirit of the Lord, four are in connection with Samson. Of the 23 references to the angel of the Lord, 13 are found in relation to his birth alone. And even the very amount of space that Scripture affords to the judges, he by far is way out ahead. For instance, Ahud has half a chapter dedicated to him. Deborah has two chapters, Gideon three, Jephthah one and a half, but Samson has four whole chapters are recorded about him alone. He's even mentioned as one of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. There's four judges mentioned in Hebrews 11. He's one of them. And yet Isaiah and Jeremiah, the great prophets, are not even mentioned. So he is a very honorable mention as one of the heroes of faith. He was the only judge, though, out of all of them, he was the only judge to have failed in his mission. Sadly. Verse thir- chapter five, verse, chapter 13, verse 5, he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. He shall begin what he never quite finished. He never finished what he began. Started out well, ended up bad. Ahud's life resulted in 80 years of rest. Deborah had 40 years of peace. Judges 8, 28, it says, and the country was in quietness 40 years in the days of Gideon. But in the 20 years of Samson's rule, there was neither rest nor peace nor quietness. It was just constant turmoil. Even though he was wonderfully gifted by God, even though he had a tremendous anointing, he was a man of great faith, and yet, and yet, and yet, he failed miserably, actually. So character will always trump charisma. No matter how much charisma or power or anointing a man or woman has got, if they don't have character, eventually they will fail and they will fall. Of all the judges, of all of them, Samson was the only one who was a Nazarite. It would appear that Samuel and John the Baptist were also Nazarites, but of all the judges, Samson was the only one called a Nazarite. Now, don't mix up Nazarite with Nazarene. Jesus wasn't a Nazarite, but he was a Nazarene because he came from Nazareth. Those who came from Nazareth were Nazarenes. But a Nazarite is different altogether. So let's begin now in chapter 13. And let's see what we can learn from the life of Samson. So verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. God was about to do something dramatic here. I I think it was F.W. Boram. 
an old writer of old. He said that when God wants to do something extraordinary in the world, he always has a baby born somewhere. There needed to be a child born, a deliverer. So she was born and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Whenever you look through the, the Bible, you will find that whenever it mentions a woman was barren and then had a child miraculously given by God, you can be sure that child was special. You can be sure there was a purpose for that life. You remember Sarah had Isaac and Manoah now, his wife is going to have Samson. And Elizabeth, the New Testament, had John the Baptist. And Hannah had Samuel. And every time that child was special. And it was a particular time for a particular purpose at a particular age that God raised up someone special. And so this, this time it was going to be Samson. Samson, by the way, his name means sunny or bright. Uh, there's arguments whether his name was taken from a sun god. Be that as it may, that's what his name basically means, sunny or bright or shining. And so it says, Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, nor to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, I will explain what a, what a Nazarite is and what the commands of Nazarite had to carry out in a moment. But one of the things was they were not allowed to eat anything of the vine, whether grapes or raisins or wine or anything, and even, even grape skins, they were not allowed to touch it. Now, even before he was born, the angel of the Lord says, don't you eat that. Now, we're not exactly sure why, but isn't it interesting that modern science has found out today that a mother with a child in the womb, that if they ingest either drugs or even alcohol or nicotine, it has an effect on that little embryo or little baby in the womb. And so maybe the angel was making her, telling her, listen, this is a special child, it's going to be a Nazarite, so before he's even born, you lay off anything that he has to, for the rest of his life, not eat and not touch. In other words, don't, be t don't let him be tainted even in the womb with this, because he's going to have to live for this the rest of his life. And so he should be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now we're going to come back to being a Nazarite uh, a little bit later. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. He was born to be a deliverer. That was the only reason he was born. This was his whole purpose in life. This is why she was born all those years, waiting for this time in history for her son to be born. And all he was to be, his whole role in life was to be a deliverer that God would raise up for the nation. And God, if you look at Christian history over the centuries, you'll see time and time and time again in different nations, when a nation was at its lowest end, that God would raise up somebody, somewhere. You know, there was a time whenever the Enlightenment, the age of the Enlightenment, when science was God in Europe, and, and France had fallen to revolution, 
And it could have been happening. It could have come to England. It could have come to the British Isles. But God raised up the Wesleys and the Whitfaiths. Instead of revolution, we had revival instead. So God always raises up somebody somewhere for his person to be uh, a deliverer. And so the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God, very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O my Lord, please let the man whom you sent uh, come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. Isn't that a lovely little sentence? Not a lovely prayer for any parent to be. There's a little prayer you should pray. Teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. We want to raise this boy up godly. That's what he's really saying. Lord, teach us how to do that. Actually, the angel didn't answer him because the answers are ready in Deuteronomy 6, how to raise up godly children. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When, she came, when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? You know, every parent in the world, when you have a child and it's growing up, you're wondering, what will become of my son or my daughter? What will they be? What will they do? What profession will they have? What will they go into? And he was no different. He knew this was special. He knew that this was a God-given thing. And he just wanted to know, well, what's going to happen? What's he going to be like? Well, they already told him for start, he's going to be a Nazarite. The day he's born, the day he dies. And as for his rule, his life, his work, what's he going to do? Well, he couldn't quite tell him quite then because it was going to be so fantastic and so unusual and so miraculous. He, he probably couldn't get his head around it even if he had it to him. And so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. And there's the third time. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you that we will prepare, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. He hadn't just quite grasped who exactly this was. Was he a prophet? Was he just a man that was gifted? like a prophet to see in the future? Or was he an angel that looked like a man? Or who was this? He's not quite sure. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? <laughs> Actually, this was an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
From time to time, he appeared in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And one of his names, Isaiah 9 and 6, and he shall be called what? Wonderful, a mighty God. Why do you ask my name, saying it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Wouldn't you? Absolutely. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. He realized this is not just a man. It's not just a prophet. This is the angel of the Lord. This is a supernatural being I'm seeing here. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. That was the prevailing thought in those days. But the Jews, if you see God, you're going to die. You'll never be able to survive. But his wife was a bit more of a logical thinker. His wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. That was wise, wasn't it? So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. Now, we know that the Lord blessed all of the, the judges, but this is the only one that's recorded that it says, and the Lord blessed him. Letting us know that he was unique, he was special. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Manane, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. And as we begin to read through the story the rest of this morning, or particularly tonight, we'll see how the Spirit of God from time to time moved mightily upon this man for a purpose. I think that it's nice the way it puts it. The Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. As he was growing up just as a young man, we don't know exactly what age he was when this happened, but, it, but at some point he began to feel stirrings within him. He began to feel a strength coming upon him when the Spirit of God was moving. Now in the Old Testament, I'm sure as you know, the Spirit of God came upon people and used them and blessed them and then left it and moved away from them. And then would come back again and move upon them. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon us the day of Pentecost came upon the disciples, but then came to live in them and in us, never to move away again. So we have the Holy Spirit at all times, 24-7, living within us. We may not realize it, we may not recognize it, we may not always feel that, but that's the reality of the Holy Spirit in today. And so it said he would be a Nazarite uh, from his mother's womb until the day of his death. In Numbers chapter 6, which we'll not read, if you read the whole chapter, you'll see what it means to be a Nazarite. The word Nazarite is a Hebrew word, Nazir, which means to be separate, to be consecrated. That's all it means. Now, can you imagine, say, the, the priests and the Levites 
who were separated and consecrated unto the Lord to do that work as priests and Levites. The ministry was, by and large, it would be around the temple or the tabernacle. They'd make the offerings. They would keep the feast. They would observe. They would serve. They would do all of these things. And so that was their job 24-7. That's all they did. But what about, what about the ordinary man in the street? What about the ordinary woman? What about Joe Bloggs? What about the normal citizen who wasn't a priest or a Levite? Well, this is where the law of the Nazarite came in. Because then they individually, man or woman, they could take a vow upon themselves voluntarily. The vow of Nazareth was voluntary. They could take a voluntary vow for a certain period of time, which they themselves would set. It could be weeks, it could be months, it could be a year. That they would set this for a time of consecration unto the Lord. For a special time of seeking the Lord for a time of drawing aside, even though they would have their ordinary work to do and go about their business, but for that particular period of time, they were saying, Lord, I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to search your heart. I'm going to be consecrated unto you. I'm going to look to you and look after you and follow you with all my heart. Now, because of that, then God gave them some laws, some guidelines, the things that they had to do to keep them, to make sure they were keeping in check. And one of them, as we read, was they were to touch nothing of the vine, to eat no grapes, not even raisins, not even their skins, to drink no wine, to drink no strong drink, nothing, nothing that would stimulate them. That was one of the things they had to do. Now, in Samson's case... Samson didn't voluntarily vow the vow of a Nazarite. He was born a Nazarite. He was born into this. And from the day he was born to the day he died, he would always be a Nazarite. So that was unusual. That's not the normal. There's only a few, and I mentioned a few, that did this. So he had no choice in this. He was born into this. But anybody else, it was their choice to do. Now, you may say, well, why... Why were they not allowed to take anything of the vine? Well, possibly because it could be a stimulant. It could be something that would stimulate them. And, and, and in seeking the Lord, the Lord only wants him to be your stimulant. If we're going to be moved at all, it's going to be by him, not by something else. Not by what we eat or what we drink. Uh, if I could put it in the modern day terms, because this is Old Testament, Right? I think something akin to be this would be if you, by your own volition, voluntarily decided that I'm going to fast for a certain period of time, maybe a day, maybe three days, maybe a week, maybe weeks, maybe a month, whatever, I'm going to fast, I'm going to eat no bread whatsoever, no solid food, I'm only going to drink water for whatever period. And in that time, you're setting aside as a time of consecration, of seeking the Lord of trying to find the heart of God. And you're doing that. Now, you may have to go about your daily business, but you'd be surprised, if you've never fasted, you'd be surprised how much a hold food has got on us. It's only when you fast that you really realize how much food gets a grip of your life. Because for the first two or three days, it's all you'll think about. And I can almost guarantee you, if you decide to fast a period and set that aside onto the Lord, for sure somebody's going to invite you out for dinner. 
I, I remember years ago when I, when I did a lot more fasting then, I, I remember I was, I was at the point where if I was on a fast, I stopped visiting my mother. Because soon in my mother, she had the pan on. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I mean, that was just a killer. I mean, you just nearly had to run out of the house when you smelt the pan. Or you passed a chippy. You smelt the fish suppers wafting out the door. I mean, it was just cruel. But it's not only just personally, but eating's a social thing, isn't it? We, we, generally, people eat together, unless you, you live on your own. But generally, people eat together. It's a social thing. Or we go out together, we have a meal together. It's a social thing. It's not just eating. So it's such a big, big part of our life. And it's only when you fast and set that aside, you realize how important that is to you and how much that stimulates you and how much you think about that and give your time to that. So when you step back from that, you say, Lord, today I'm going to seek your face. That time I would be eating whatever time you eat, I'm not going to sit at the dinner table. I'm going to go into my room and I'm going to pray or I'm going to read your word and I'm going to fast. So that's the only kind of modern-day equivalent I can give to the thing about that first part of the Nazarite. Uh, the second thing was they were to touch nothing that was dead. No dead bodies, no corpses, uh, even their father, their mother, their brother, or their sister. Even, even in the midst of this, if they were in, if they had taken a vow for, say, six months, and their mom or their dad or their brother or sister died, they could not go to the funeral. They could not be near that dead body. So this was going to be a real sacrifice. This would test. This would test them. Now, everybody in the family would know that they were taking a vow of the Nazarite. They would know that, and they would understand, but still, emotionally, they would want to be there. They would want to be in that room where their loved one was. They would want to be at that funeral, but they couldn't be. You say, what would happen if they did go? Well, their vow would be broken. And if that was the case, they'd have to go to the priest, have to shave their head, go to the priest, make all kinds of offerings, and then start all over again. And so it was a test. Now, just by sheer coincidence, that last week, whenever we... Uh, talked about another subject, about the cost of being a disciple in, in, in Luke chapter 9 and uh, verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And we said about that, as you remember, that Jesus wasn't being cruel or unkind here because in those days, when you died, you are buried very quickly. Very often the same day before sundown you were buried. So it wasn't a case the father had just died and he said, well, please let me go and just bury him today and I'll follow you. No, the father hadn't died. The father was getting old. And so he could live for months. He could live for years yet. So he's kind of making an excuse I'm not ready to follow you yet, but whenever my dad's died and the inheritance is given up and everything's sort of, they'll come and follow you. Jesus says, no, let the spiritually dead bury their dead. You come follow me. Don't make excuses. Come follow me. And so here's a similar thing. And, and again, in, uh, over in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, and I think we read that that week also, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he said, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so it was a commitment to make. And even though you would love your mom or your dad or your brother or sister very, very much, but you made this vow, vows to God are very, very, very important. God takes them very seriously indeed. And how serious? If your father and mother dies, don't even go to the funeral. Don't even touch that body. Because if you do that, you've broken your vow. Now, if you accidentally touch the body, as I said, then you'd have to start all over again. Begin all over again. And so it wasn't wise to do that. And so these are part of the vows that you had to take. The third thing was no cutting of the hair. You had to grow your hair. Now, if you were a woman and you'd taken a vow, the chances were you had long hair anyway, so maybe you had to plait them a certain way or make a ring that of them or something. But if you were a man, you had to grow your hair. You couldn't touch your hair. You couldn't shave your head. You had to let it grow as long as the period you were saying it was a, a year. Then your hair would be long. Samson had seven big locks of hair because he was a Nazareth all of his life. And so, what was the hair about? Well, not to cut the hair. The, the hair was something that, that people noticed. They saw that. So when people saw a man, because we, we generally think of, you, you, see, you see pictures of Jesus with long, long hair. The chances are he didn't have long hair. So with all these ideas, an Eastern man looked in those days. To see a man in those days with long, long hair the chances are he's a Nazarite. That was a dead giveaway. People could see he was a Nazarite. And it's not that the Nazarite wanted to show off or say, hey, look at me, I'm a Nazarite. See my hair? No, that, that didn't even come into it. But it was to show that he was set apart, to make sure don't offer him any wine or grapes. Don't invite him to any funerals. Don't make sure he's not going to touch any dead thing. And so, in a way, it was protecting him from that, and it made him stand out. Now, today, as believers, it's, it's, our dress is not the most important thing. We should dress modestly, obviously, as anybody should. But our dress is not what makes us stand out, but there should be something about us, something about our demeanor, something that comes through us that people will say, there goes a Christian. There's a true Christian. There's a real believer. There should be something about us, how we walk, how we live, our demeanor, our character, everything, that people can see, they can see in us that we are a Christian, we're a believer. Amen? And so these in those days were three particular areas that they must not break because if they do that, they're breaking their vow to God. And sadly, Samson broke all of them. Some of them again and again. He had tremendous power, highly gifted, great charisma. And, and his name was Sonny, and the chances were he was a Sonny character. You know, he'd make up riddles, as we'll see later on, not this morning, but later on. He'd make up riddles, and he was very good at it. Riddles in those days were, were a kind of a fun thing. It was a game people played. He was really good at it. 
as you'll see later on, we'll do this tonight. And so he was that type of character. He had charisma, you know, he, 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 was, he was man about town, you know. Now, the one thing you mustn't think when you think of Samson is somebody who was built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because, you know, growing up in Sunday school, all the Sunday school books of the kids, Samson had big bulging biceps, he had thighs like tree trunks, you know, he had a belly like steel, you know, he was just a big mountain of a man. No, not at all. He just was an ordinary-looking guy until the Spirit of God came on him. And that's why, as we'll see later tonight, that's why the Philistines said, what is the secret of his great strength? Well, if he had been built like Arnold Schwarzenegger, they wouldn't even ask that question. But they didn't know, because he just looked ordinary, other than his long, long hair. But when the Spirit of God came on him, then he was supernatural power. It was unbelievable what he was able to do. So he was very, very different. And so, God willing, we will delve a little deeper tonight, and particularly we'll get to the place of his relationship with Delilah. There's so many things we need to learn and be warned of as believers today. All these things are here for our admonition of whom the ends of the earth has come upon. So these are here for us to be taught, to see, to avoid the pitfalls, to see the wrong way. Don't do that. If you do that, this is what will happen. So tonight we're going to go into this a little bit further. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.